historians, there was actually another procession that was taking place that day as well. There was another procession, and there was another, another ruler riding in. And from the west of the city, how many of you guys have ever studied some of the, the Roman historians that actually say that from the west, what we have to understand is Jerusalem, Jerusalem was under Roman rule. The Jews were under the, the Roman Empire. They were not a free people. Their traditions, their culture, everything had been affected by Roman rule. And so what happened was 80 years prior to Jesus riding in on his donkey, prior to that is when the Romans took over Jerusalem. They took it over and so that they were, had been under Roman rule for 80 years. What we need to understand is that when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, it was during the Passover celebration. They were getting ready to celebrate Passover. What is Passover? Passover is when the Jews are celebrating and remembering their deliverance from another ruler, which was Egypt. So every Passover, the Jews were coming together and they were remembering this great deliverance. They were recalling the deliverer who set them free from Egypt. So do you want to know that during Passover season, the Romans actually would get a little bit nervous. There was the understanding that these people have the expectation of a Messiah. They're gathering and they're amassing together in Jerusalem to celebrate what happened in their deliverance in Egypt. And it's the understanding of, oh my goodness, is it going to happen again? Is there another deliverance coming? And so do you understand that the, the energy of that city during Passover, every Passover, and literally Roman historians record that the, the military would amp up, they would make a visible presence. And it was basically to say, do not defy our authority. We will suppress you. Do you know what actually happened four years before the birth of Jesus? There was an uprising that took place. And because of that, about 2,000 Jews were crucified. Because they began an uprising of, of coming up against the Roman rule because they didn't want to be suppressed any longer. And with that uprising, they came and they demolished the entire city. They took over the city. So you have to understand, it was a time of great unrest. These people were under Roman rule, and during the Passover season, they were having an expectation. There was a longing in their heart saying, come, Messiah, come. Come deliver your people. Just like you delivered us from Egypt, deliver us once more. There was a cry in the heart of those people for deliverance. And the Romans would come in, and so here we have Jesus coming in from the east on a donkey, Pontius Pilate is riding in from the west on his grand horses. He's riding in with, with the military power that were all clad in armor. He's riding in with all the strength and the majesty of him being a governmental leader. And do you know that even this text of scripture, when we're looking at Jesus riding in, he's riding in on a donkey. He did not come as a man of war. Here's Pontius Pilate and all of his armies coming and parading into the city from the west. And they're coming with military might, saying, do not stand against us. And here's Jesus coming. It says, meek and lowly, riding on a donkey. So Matthew 21 is where we pick up our story and the understanding of the context of the city at that period of time. So what we have to understand is when you turn to Matthew 21, how many of you guys are familiar kind of with the, the old Hosanna to the son of David? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Many of you guys probably even with your palm branches when you were little 
or crying Hosanna with the palm branches. What we have to understand is this Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. They had a promise that it would be the son, a son of David that would take his rightful throne. They were aching for once again the lineage of David to rule over them. So do you understand that when they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, when they're crying out, they're actually acknowledging. What you need to understand is literally as in, in Matthew 21, Let's pick up, um, actually, let's start in verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Verse 4. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, sitting, sitting, and sitting, uh, sorry, lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is actually a quote from Zechariah 9. This is exactly what was said in Zechariah 9 9. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. Then they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him, being Jesus, on them. And a very great multitude, say a very great multitude. A very great multitude. Spread their clothes on the road. This was a sign of giving reverence to a king. This is a sign of giving honor to a king. They spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. Then the multitude who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, say this with me, all the city was moved. All the city was moved. Saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. How many of you guys recognize in this passage of scripture, it's the fulfillment of what was prophesied Zechariah 9.9. The extraordinary thing is in the Old Testament, there's more than 44 biblical prophecies about the coming of Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, we don't have time today, but when you look at the story of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, those prophecies are fulfilled. So you, do you know what this day, the, this triumphal entry it, it was a day of rec recognizing. It was a day of coming to an understanding of who was in their midst. But it also was a day of misunderstanding. And the reason that that is, is we actually find these people and they're reverencing him. They're honoring him. They're paying homage to him as king. There's an expectation in them that this is the long-awaited king. And guess what? It's the understanding that he is going to come overthrow the Roman they're thinking that their Messiah has come into their midst, and now all of their oppression will cease. That their Messiah has come into their midst, and now they will be liberated and set free. So we find that the fulfillment of what Zechariah had spoken in Zechariah 9.9 is fulfilled here in, 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 in Jesus. How many of you guys are familiar that also with um, Isaiah chapter 53? We're going to turn there. Do you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 53? This is another Old Testament prophecy concerning the coming of Jesus. 
lays out who he is and what he has come to do. Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form of comeliness, and when, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we shall desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to slaughter. And as a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made, made him a grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This goes on, this is another prophecy from Isaiah. It's actually speaking once again of the humility of Jesus. That he was utterly despised. And what we have to understand is that as Jesus rode in on a donkey, he did not come with strength, he did not come with force, he did not come with violence. Right here, the very picture of who Jesus is, and it speaks to us as people, that he does not come according to the systems of when you read Isaiah chapter 53, there was nothing in him that appealed to our human nature, to our carnal nature, to our appetite for strength and dignity and nobility. Literally, when they were crying Hosanna, what you have to understand, if you study the word Hosanna in the Hebrew and the Greek, in the Old Testament, the, the cry of Hosanna was, oh, save us. It was a cry, save us. But in the New Testament, the way it's translated in the Greek and the understanding, that cry went from a cry of desperation and a cry for help to a cry of de declaration. It more became a declaration and a proclamation. He has come to save. So they weren't even making an appeal to Jesus saying, save us. They were declaring salvation is in our midst. He has come to save. It went from a cry of help, from a cry of brokenness, to a cry of strength and declaration that salvation has come. So here we find them declaring the Messiah in our midst. We find it says the entire city was moved. That's extraordinary. We find this grant they gave him, although he was not demanding and he was not creating his own grand entrance, they were giving him a grand parade. The laying down of their garments, the laying down of palm branches, they were creating the triumphal entry, acknowledging who he is. But then what happens from that point? We find an entire week of Jesus in the temple teaching. We find the Pharisees and the Sadducees challenging him, basically saying, tell your people to stop this.
and they're correcting and rebuking. We find a week where Jesus did not come and overthrow the rulers. But what do we find instead that took place? We find that he was betrayed. We find that he was taken in and he was questioned. We find the utter hum humiliation of Jesus. And then what do we find? The very same crowd that was crying, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who acknowledging him as Savior. We find the very same crowd of people that when Pontius Pilate offers Barabbas, a murderer, or Jesus of Nazareth, they, how many of you guys know the tradition at that time on, on Good Friday, that when we're celebrating Good Friday, basically what is happening that day is it was their tradition to release one of the prisoners. They, the governmental leaders knew Jesus was innocent. He literally declares his blood will not be upon my hands, it's about, upon the hands of the people. At that time, they, a murderer, can you imagine in our community a known murderer, us choosing the release of a known murderer? The very same people that acknowledged him as Messiah, Hosanna, he's come to save. When he did not come and display his strength and his power in the way that they desired, disillusionment and confusion overcome the people. And then instead of standing by his side, instead of living in allegiance to Jesus, they're the very ones that begin to chant, crucify him, crucify him. It was the multitudes, it was the people of that city that cried out for the crucifixion of Jesus. It was not the governmental leaders that decided to crucify. It was the, the popular majority vote at that place. What I want us to see when we look at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ is the acknowledgement that they acknowledged him as Messiah and as King. It was the acknowledgement that he was the son of David come to take his rightful throne. But Jesus did not come in the way that appealed or the way that their mind and their heart could perceive and understand. You know what Jesus did? He came in a way that was offensive to him. At that point, they could not see his strength. They could not see how he was going to do this. You know, if you've read anything concerning leadership, they actually say the essence of leadership is progressively disappointing your people on a measure that they can handle and process. <laughs> right? There's varying degrees of disappointment. And you're basically feeding it to them and carrying them along and they're disappointed in a way that they can handle and process without utter collapse. You know, instead of Jesus, is that basically the disappointment was too great. The reality of the circumstance that he was not going to come and overthrow the Roman throne. That he wasn't going to come and challenge and confront with all of his strength, with all of his authority, with all the force of heaven behind him. But yet he came in brokenness and in humility, that he came riding on a pitiful donkey, and then that entire week he did not defend, he did not unleash the lightning rod of heaven to level all of the Roman Empire. Instead, he subjected himself he went the way of the process. He understood that in the end, God had a plan. Yeah. And guess what? His plan is better than ours. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to know why the story, yes, Resurrection Sunday is big, and we should celebrate it huge. But do you want to know why even the understanding of the triumphal entry 
is even greater for our salvation and that if we can't embrace and understand the way that he entered and the way he came as king on the donkey lonely, we'll never walk out our Christian life and our Christian faith as disciples. We never will. You know why? Because we'll embrace some kind of a philosophy, an ideology, and a theology that somehow it comes through force and it comes through strength. Do you realize that so many times, it, it's, a, it's an American thing, it is not a global thing, but in the American culture, the amount that we focus upon salvation and Jesus will somehow make you successful, the amount that somehow the salvation message is fed to us under the guise of blessing and prosperity, how much of it is under the guise of what God wants to do and give you abundance, but if you look at biblical Christianity, Jesus looked like an utter failure. And you know why? He did not come according to the system of this world. He was not bound by the system of this world. There was a greater kingdom that he was a part of. And that was the kingdom he desired to bring into the earth and realm. He said, I am not subject to the systems of this world. And instead what we've done as the Church of Jesus Christ, we've taken biblical truths that make us feel good, that make us feel as though we're going to bless, we're going to prosper, all of those things. Let's just be real people. The disciples of Jesus Christ, all of them were martyred. <laughs> Except who? John of the Isle of Patmos. Way to go, John! He wasn't martyred, he was just tortured! Just martyr me now, I'd rather. <laughs> just be martyred. And live all of those years in torture in the Isle of Patmos. No, but in all honesty, where do we get the understanding that somehow Jesus came to make you rich, to make you successful, to make you famous, and to give you a comfortable life? That is nowhere what the biblical teaching of Christianity is. He said, pick up your cross and come after me. He said, if you want to be my disciple, guess what? It involves a cross. We can't skip over the story and the reality of the cross. That is our salvation. You will never experience true salvation unless you come by the way of the cross. Unless the cross is embraced. Unless the cross has even come to the place that we love and adore the work of the cross and we no longer despise it and somehow think that we are going to get around it. Jesus didn't say, I came to do this for you. He said, I came to invite you into this place. He said, I am showing you the way of salvation. This is your salvation. It's not a seeking of your life. It's a laying down of your life. It's not a, you know, this is, this is my greatest concern right here. In the, in, in the, the Western world, because I, I ask this, and I know a lot of people that come from a lot of different parts of the country, I mean, sorry, from a lot of different parts of the world, and I ask very intently about Christianity there. What, are, what is the message that's being preached? How are you affected by the American gospel that's preached through our televisions? And I'm going to say this to you. The prosperity message has done more, more damage globally. Do you want to know why that is? If we are all living thinking that somehow God wants to make us rich and prosperous, no one will ever go on the mission field. Why would you do that? Why, why would you give your life on the mission field, preaching the gospel to unreached peoples? Why, don't you want to be counted amongst those? that God came to bless and make rich and make wealthy? Hey, I get it. Some of you in this place, God has actually given you a, a true call, a true ability. 
to reach influencers and to use finance for the kingdom. I am for it. I'm 100% for it. But you know what it comes down to? Seek first the kingdom of God. If you're seeking the kingdom of God and he wants to add it to you, receive it. Receive it. But if that is what you are chasing after, you're not chasing after the kingdom of God. It is absolutely, if you are chasing wealth and fame and influence and those things, you are not seeking the kingdom of God. It's a divided heart. But I want to say to you, I firmly believe that if you are chasing after the kingdom of God, he can add that to you. And you know why? It's because you can be trusted. Trusted with riches. See, riches are not dangerous. Riches are not harmful. What's harmful is when we want to accumulate for our own gain. It's not how much we have, it's how much we give. It's how much we can release. It's not how much we have, it's how much it owns us. It's how much we're serving those things. And this is what we find in the message of Jesus coming in on a donkey, weak and lonely. The weak and lonely message is not a popular message in the Church of America. We want strength, we want might, we want influence, we want rule. And I understand and I believe that God wants us to be influencers, but it's not according to the means of the natural. It's not according to the means of our, our multimedia marketing. And according to, you know, all of the systems of this world, and somehow, I'm going to say this to you. Oftentimes, as the church of Jesus Christ, we get more concerned about amassing masses of people together, yeah. building mega structures. Let me ask you something, and I want to say this to you. What if from amongst us, there were 10 to 15 of us, that's, that's really all we need, 10 to 15 of us that were so captured with a vision of Jesus. We were willing to abandon everything, devote our lives, and all we want is the will and the presence of God. You 10 to 15 start home groups in your houses. I guarantee you, you'll begin to see the manifest presence of Jesus because of the degree of abandonment and devotion and desire and fire that communities and neighborhoods will be affected and influenced. Boston will be turned upside down. Doesn't need a mega church of 5,000 to all come together and we all preach that God wants to make you happy, wants to make you successful, go earn your wages and give him a portion. No, 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 it was utter abandoned. It was there is a cross and he has invited you and bid you come down. Yeah. There you go. And that is precisely what happened. They reverenced him as king as he wrote in on this song. But when he did not come and parade and overtake and overthrow the way that their carnal mind desired, they then rejected him. And you know, how many of us, that's actually the story of our lives, is that we acknowledge him as king. We love his presence, we love to worship him, even in the midst of worship, we have a great worship team here, so easy to worship Jesus. Let me ask you something, in the place of suffering, in the place of hardship, in the place of disease, in the place of infirmity, in those places that we have a response that you are here in the midst of. You know, his word says, I will work all things together for the good of those that love me. Either it's true or it's not. That either, and here we people, I don't think God brings those things upon us. I don't think he looks at us and says, hey, you, I'm going to pick you. I'm going to torture you with this. I don't think that at all. You know what I think? I think we live in a fallen world. 
We live in a fallen world with ticks that have lives. <laughs> we live in a fallen world where there's chemicals that give us cancer. We live in a foreign, a fallen world where there's disease and devastation. We have friends that lost a nine-month-old baby to SIDS. But you want to see something? I, we've watched them suffer and suffer greatly. But you know what they're doing? They're still, they're still holding their hands open and worshiping in the midst of suffering. See, that's the place of worship. It's not when it all goes our way and according to our system of thought. You want to know what that actually is? That's called humanism, that's called pride, and that's called idolatry. That's saying, do it my way, and if you do, then I will surrender. But if you do it in a way that is offensive and not in my timing, and it causes brokenness and humility, then I turn my back and I walk out. And for many of us, we don't turn our back and I walk out. Our hearts just shut down. We speculate and question. We're no longer in a place where our heart is tender and pliable and yielding. And do you understand that it's the gift of brokenness that brings us into the kingdom? First Corinthians says this momentary light affliction is working in you an eternal weight of glory. Maybe that is why we have not known the weight of his glory in the church of the Jesus Christ. And you know why it is? It's because we despise affliction. We despise suffering. We refuse to preach a gospel that somehow makes room for that in our theology. You know what we do is disease and infirmity and even in, in poverty, somehow it's a curse. You're in agreement with the devil. You've got to cast out that demon. No, how about he cares more about your heart. He cares more about you as a person. He cares more about you being conformed to the image of Christ than he cares about how comfortable you are. I'm going to read to you guys this perspective. For some of you, this might be offensive. For some of you, this might be alarming. But I don't know how many of you guys have ever um, read the book by Brennan Manning, um, The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus. Anybody ever read it? I recommend it. <laughs> The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus. No. This is what Brendan Newman says. I'm going to read you two quotes from it. Number one says, The most common question in evangelism today is, What can Jesus do for me? Potential converts are told that Jesus can make them happier better adjusted and more prosperous. Jesus quickly becomes the supreme product, attractively packaged and aggressively sold to the consuming public. Everywhere you turn, there are billboards and buttons and bumper stickers honk if you love Jesus. He's being advertised as a competitive market with a very ingenuous, uh, oh, sorry, with a very ingenious Madison, Madison Avenue sales techniques, even, even more so than Coca-Cola, Jesus is the real thing. As Jim Wallace notes in The Call to Conversion, he says, the gospel message is being molded to suit an increasingly narcissistic culture. Conversion is proclaimed as the road to self-realization, religion as a way to help, our, to help us uncover our human potential, our potential for personal, social, business success, that is. Modern conversion brings Jesus into our lives rather than bringing us into his life. We are told that Jesus is here to help us do better, do better what we are already doing. 
Jesus doesn't change our lives, he will improve our lives. What a tra tragic distortion of the gospel. Christianity is incompatible with the worship of other gods. Christ is used to serve the interests of the wealthy, uh, uh, sorry, Christ is used to serve the interests of wealth and power. Listening to some evangelical preachers, you would never get the idea that the coming of Jesus was intended to turn the world upside down. This is one perspective I actually want to read to you. It's a story um, regarding something that took place in a concentration camp. It says, in the concentration camp of Ravensbrück, Germany, the, the graveyard of human life and, and longing, an unknown prisoner wrote this prayer. I want you to hear this prayer. An unknown prisoner wrote this prayer on a torn scrap of, of writing paper and left it by the body of a dead child. So this is a concentration camp. And this is what the prayer said. O oh Lord, remember not only the men and women of good will, but also those of ill will. But do not remember the suffering that they have inflicted upon us. Remember the fruits of what we have borne, thanks to the suffering. Our, our camaraderie, our loyalty, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart which has grown out of this affliction and this suffering. And when they have come to judgment, let all of the fruits that we have borne be for their forgiveness. Wow. Do you realize what this man is saying? What we look at uh, as utter devastation, what we look upon because we want a life that is prosperous, a life that is blessed, a life that is strong and without hardship. This gentleman is literally saying that the way that they have been brought of suffering brought about a measure of the kingdom that they never could have known. And he's literally saying that those that brought it upon us do not hold it to their charge, the evil they've done. Instead, look at what is produced in the heart of your people. Is that a paradigm shift or what? How many of you guys are familiar with the beheadings that ISIS have done? But how many of you guys are even more familiar than with the horror of what they have inflicted? But yet the, the Christian, Bible-believing family members of those that were martyred, they're not angry, they're not bitter. Do you understand their heart response was one of rejoicing? They said it is an honor to be counted amongst the martyrs. They said the lives of our brothers were those that have ushered into us a new dimension of the kingdom. The perspective was eternal. And it's exactly 1 Corinthians. This momentary light affliction is working in me an eternal way of glory. That passage of scripture goes on to say, we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. I'm going to say that to you one more time. Get that in your spirit. We look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. This right here is the perspective of Jesus and why he was willing during the entire Holy Week to go through suffering and affliction. He wasn't looking at what was being seen. He was living in the unseen realm. Understanding that there was eternity before him. How many of us live in light of what is seen? The 
here, the now, the next four, the next five, the next ten years, of what we can produce, what we can become, what we're laboring for, and instead of having our eyes upon the eternal, the unseen realm, those things that cannot be measured with money, those things that cannot be measured with outward status of who you are, but that eternal reality inside of us, that I might know him, that I might know him. Do you realize where Paul was saying in Philippians? That I might know him in his suffering and in the power of his resurrection. We only come to know him when we embrace. I'm going to read you guys a couple of passages of scripture here. Luke 9, 57 through 58. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee wherever you go. And Jesus responded, what does Jesus say? Not, come on, it's a good life, it's a prosperous life, it's a comfortable life, we'll make you rich. What's Jesus say? And Jesus said unto him, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Yeah. You know what he's saying? I'm not guaranteeing you anything. You might not have a hotel room tonight. My invitation is not one of guarantee of blessing and prosperity. My invitation is one of fellowship. Yeah. If you want a fellowship with me where I am, come on, Jerry. Yeah. Be willing to give it all up. Holding on to nothing, have eyes for the unseen. Yeah. Matthew 11, 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lonely in heart. And my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you. A servant is not greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all of these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sins. Philippians 3, 8 through 10. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them, but dumb, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is of Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I might know him, and the power of his resurrection, and in the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death. 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice in as much as you are partakers in Christ's suffering that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the, the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing and unto a faithful creator. One commentator said regarding 1 Peter 4.13, there is no reasons for, reason for Christians to think it strange or to wonder at the unkindness and the persecutions of this world because they are forewarned of them. Christ himself endured them 
and forsaking all, denying ourselves are the terms upon which accepts us as his disciples. Christians ought not only to be patient, but to rejoice in the sharpest, sorest sufferings of Christ, because they are the token of divine favor. They promote the gospel and prepare us for glory. Those who rejoice in their sufferings for Christ show it, it eternally triumph and rejoice in their glory. And this is what I want us to see as we are celebrating Holy Week, as we even Easter Sunday celebrate the resurrection. I want you all this week, I encourage you, go to the story of Jesus. Go and read the words that Jesus spoke in that final week as he was in the temple. Go and look upon the fact that he had the masses rejoicing and crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of God. Here is salvation. But those very same people stood and rejected and crucified, calling for his crucifixion. And this is what I want to charge us as a community of people. Let's be found worshiping him in triumph and in tragedy. Let's not be of the, the modern American mindset that somehow the gospel must be self-serving, that somehow it must benefit me and my own, but let's be those that regardless, even it's the story of Job. Job said, though you slay me, I will trust you. It wasn't God that brought it about to Job. It was the enemy that came to sift him, and Job was found with a perfect heart before him. I want to invite us as a community of people to truly look what, what is discipleship? <clears throat> what is the road of discipleship? And that if we are going to celebrate resurrection, resurrection power, let's be those that embrace the fullness of who Christ is. The fullness of his invitation to us. His invitation to us is a life of abandon. His invitation to us is that even when you don't understand, Put down the little God of me, and my way, my agenda, my want, my opinion. That's why it doesn't matter. Your opinion really does not matter. Because in light of eternity, you're clueless. I'm sorry to say that, but it's true. You're clueless. You really are. Just, I mean, just, just, just embrace that humble felt right there. You're clueless. He knows all. He sees all. And even if he allows tragedy in our lives, even if it crushes every expectation, that he is wise and he is loving. And somehow out of that, good will come. Somehow. I'm going to be honest, Daryl and I, we know many people that walk a road of suffering that we have never known, that we have never experienced, that we have never tasted. And you know, and I used to be in a place of saying, and I pray I never do. But you know what? My prayer has changed. My prayer has been, God, that if anything like that befalls me, find me standing. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's very easy to look upon the lot that other people have in life, whether that be poverty, whether that be sickness, and somehow pray, don't let that come near my house. But what if instead our heart posture was, God, that find me as, as a posture of perfect worship, no matter what can. When it increases, we rejoice. When it decreases, we're still rejoicing. 
And you want to know something? I'm going to say this to you. This understanding of suffering and this understanding of the gospel and Jesus and how he suffered and that he did not despise the shame, that there was a place that he embraced, we as the American church need this because people suffer. People, I don't care who you are. I don't care how good it looks. I don't care how comfortable it is. I don't care how fancy it is. I don't care how good it smells. Every single person has a place and a cross that they are bearing, that there is an affliction in their soul. And until we can come to a place of identifying that we are human beings that live in a broken world, there is hardship and there is difficulty. And it doesn't mean that Jesus is going to take it all away. It means he will stand with you in the midst of it. Because yeah. you want to know what happens when we're preaching a prosperity gospel in America? You want to know what happens is when tragedy strikes people's homes, they have to depart from places that are preaching that. Because you know what? Their life no longer fits in that box, in that theology. The question then becomes, well, where is God in this? The question then becomes, has he forsaken me? Does he not care about me? Has he abandoned me? Is he disciplining me? No, how about Job? He was perfect. And because of the perfection of his heart, the Lord knew that he would respond with a heart of worship and come out on the other side of it. You know, you can disagree with this, but John Piper actually says that a life of ease, a life of prosperity and blessing is actually the curse. Yeah. Because in some degree, it leaves us to ourselves. It leaves us in a position where somehow we're blinded yeah. and, and we're deceived in the state of our own heart. And mind you, I'm saying, if you are prosperous and blessed, I, I want to say, trust that it's the hand of God, and as long as you're pursuing the kingdom of God first, he will add all to you. Hear me, people. I would love, love, love millions and millions so I could fund things in the kingdom. I do not despise wealth. But I'm going to say this to you. I despise the chasing after wealth. That blinds us, it deadens us to the kingdom of God. Because you know what it does? It gets us to this realm that even Paul was talking about. We live in a realm that's seen. We're consumed with a realm that's seen. What it looks like, how it appeals, what it feels like, what it means, what it, what it says about me, what it declares about me, what does it say about you? Instead of living in the realm that is unseen and understanding in light of eternity. That's where we're called to live our lives. And that is the invitation of Jesus. We're actually going to close out Today, our promise Sunday, we're going to take communion. If you guys want to um, worship, actually, Fabiana, I think it's at back. I think the. Um... You know, I want to encourage you. We're going to gather next Sunday for Resurrection Sunday, and I want to encourage us not to move past the Holy Week and all that Jesus walked through, but also not to move past the crucifixion. And what that means, the invitation, the cross of Jesus Christ. Because without the cross, we have no salvation.
Thank you. 